I wonder honestly before the Lord where you would place yourself tonight. And I wonder how you judge that. Some of you may be quick to say, well, I judge that by my Bible reading or I judge it by my prayer life or I judge it by my times of worship or my church attendance. Some of us like to judge where we're at by how often we're witnessing to people, whether we have a consistent prayer uh, in us that wants to reach out to other people. Laodicea is the lukewarm church, and um, it is the seventh, as I mentioned, and final church. Just a little bit of geography as we look at the lukewarm church tonight. I don't think that one's working. Let's try the next one. So um, as we've looked at the seven churches, the uh, Laodicean church down on the bottom of the screen was part of a triad of cities in the Lycus Valley. We've studied a little bit of this geography when we went through the book of Colossians. So the triad of cities down there at the bottom of the map are Heropolis, Colossae, and then Laodicea. Now, when we studied the book of Colossians, we looked at the, the Colossian heresy, and we looked at some of the geography of this area. And in Colossae, uh, waters would flow down from a mountain called Mount Cadmus. And it would flow, and, and you know, if you've ever looked at a cold, rushing stream with pure, moving, cold water running down from a snow-covered mountain. You've got the picture of uh, the Colossian kind of water system. Up in the north, northern part of Laodicea, just, you know, these cities are within about 10 miles of each other, is a place called Heropolis. Heropolis was known for its hot springs. If you've ever been to a place where there's a natural hot spring, you kind of have the feel of what that's about. They say that the hottest that these springs would get is 95 degrees Fahrenheit, and so you would have these hot springs. One of the interesting things about the city of Laodicea, among other things, is that it was at a critical juncture in terms of its geography for a trade route and that kind of thing, but it had to pipe in its water. This was one of the down parts of, the, of this location, and this is something that they have found that had some of these channels for water. Here's a close-up view of what a Laodicean uh, water piping system would look like. Uh, kind of an aqueduct idea where you wouldn't have an immediate water in your general vicinity, so water had to be pumped in from another local. Uh, there's a little bit of a debate among scholars as to which city was feeding the water supply of Laodicea. Some people believe that the Laodicean water system was coming from the hot springs of Heropolis. There's a little debate about that right now. Some people argue that Colossae to the south was supplying the water that came into Laodicea. Either way, when the water got there, um, there was a couple things that would happen to it. It would lose its temperature, whether it was from Heropolis or Colossae. It had, it had become tepid or it had become um, water that uh, uh, was lukewarm. And then the other thing that would happen in this piping system is it would pick up calcium carbonates um, which upon drinking the water, if it picked up enough of this stuff, uh, the water would be no good. It would be cloudy. It would pick, pick up these calcium deposits. And when you drink it, when you drank the water, it would make you want to throw up. And so this, is, this was the downside in the system in, in terms of being in this, this city. And then, of course, if you had um, an army that wanted to really deal a death blow to you, they would mess with your water system. And as I understand the history of Laodicea, there were some serious um, uh, it was considered a serious crime to even be thought of that you were messing with this water system. 
In the ancient world, you will even see kings that are checking the water supply. We can see this in the book of Isaiah, where there's an invading army about to come, and the, and the king is taking a look at the water supply, because if they can cut off the water supply, you know, you're pretty much doomed if they can cut off your food and water. And so this is the area of Laodicea, and this is the church that we're dealing with tonight. It's called, of course, the Lukewarm Church. Now, one of the things I'd like to say to you tonight is to ask the question, what's the solution to lukewarmness? I think we would all say, here we are on a Wednesday night, we're all, you know, this is the core of believers of this church. You guys come on out on Wednesday nights. You, you need that midweek <laughs> infiltration of the word of God, amen? We need it every single day. But I think we would all, being honest tonight, say that we have hit seasons of our life where lukewarm was probably a fair description of our walk with Jesus Christ. It's a sad description, but it's probably at some points in all of our lives been a fair description of where we are. What causes lukewarmness? What's the reason that one would become lukewarm? When I think of lukewarmness, I think of a person who lacks zeal. I think of a Christian who pretty much says whatever to the things of God. A person who, who is not really zealous for what really matters. A person who's caught up in the world and uh, just kind of puts uh, the things of Christ low in terms of their own priorities. When you look at the word for Laodicea, it's a word combination, laos, which means people, and dekao, which means to rule. So some people have said that Laodicea, a good definition, is the rule of the people. Almost like the idea of a democracy where, you know, we want to make our own decisions and then when we really need God, we'll call upon God. It seems to be a bit of the attitude of America anymore, is we know we have this biblical heritage. We know we're a country founded on the Judeo-Christian ethic. And when we really need God, that's when we have prayer meetings and that's when we decide to cry out to God. And for the rest of the time, we pretty much tell God, we've got this, we're good we have need of nothing. And so to the angel of the church, Revelation 3.14, in Laodicea write, Jesus is addressing this church through the apostle John and addressing this city called Laodicea. Geographically, on a high plateau, 700, or several hundred feet high, uh, ge geographically impregnable, they would say, part of this triad of cities, as I've mentioned and shown you on the map, Founded by the Seleucid dynasty and named for a person named Laodice, the wife of Antiochus, founded between about 261 and 247 BC. An extremely wealthy city was Laodicea, especially during the uh, Roman period of time, which is where we find ourselves as we study Revelation. Laodicea was noted and, and, and very well known for a wealthy banking center, a lot of money. In fact, they had a pretty tragic earthquake. I think it's around A.D. 60, and Rome offered to help them rebuild the city. And Laodicea said, we don't need your help. We've got plenty of money. we got everything we need. Thanks, but no thanks. And they said no to the money of Rome because they didn't need it. They said, in essence, we're fine, we're good. And they lived in an affluent uh, situation. Laodicea was also known for fashion, banking, the water supply, and it was known for fashion. It was known for the black wool industry, manufacturing garments from the raven black soft wool produced by the sheep of the surrounding area. 
They made much soft, uh, sought after uh, clothes and carpets in Laodicea. So it was known for fashion, cutting edge style, expensive hip clothes. In fact, back in Laodicea, they had lipsters. Um, anyway, some of you will catch that in a second. It wasn't a hipster, it was a lipster. Never mind, that was a weak attempt. But anyway, there are also indications in Laodicea that there was a significant uh, work of ophthalmology going on there. It boasted a famous medical school, the nearby temple of the Phrygian god called Men Karu, uh, an important medical school associated with this false god. The school was famous for an eye salve that it had developed, which ex it exported all over the Greco-Roman world. So it was highly coveted. If you had eye problems, you could put this eye salve on and apparently it could help some of your problems. But as I mentioned, it was also very well known for this emetic water or this lukewarm water. They are addressed in Revelation 3.14, notice, by uh, the amen, the second part of verse 14. The faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this. You could say, thus says the Lord. In verse 14, there are three incredible descriptions of the Lord Jesus Christ all of them have to do with his deity. Number one, he is called the Amen or the Amen. Amen actually comes from the Hebrew, and the word Amen is uh, located, one place it's located, and this is where this comes from, is Isaiah 65. So turn over to Isaiah 65. Amen. What does Amen mean? When you say Amen or Amen to a preacher, you are saying, that's right. That's true. That's faithful. Amen. So if you ever hear someone preaching heresy, don't say amen. If you think something is false, don't say amen. I remember some years ago, we were playing in a softball championship game, slow pitch, a couple of Christian teams you know, from churches, and we were in a prayer circle, and there was a Yankee fan in our midst. I think he was all alone because there were Dodger and Angel fans. And he said something. He prayed a prayer for the Yankees. And one of the people in the circle refused to say the amen. In fact, he said it out loud. I will not say the amen. Release the hand of the Yankee fan. We had a church fight right there. No, I'm just kidding. We didn't. But you could say it this way. The true one says this. Jesus Christ is the amen. Faithful and true is his name. He always does that which is true and faithful and right and good. In Isaiah 65, God is addressing his people. Verse 10, he says, And Sharon shall be a pasture land for flocks, the valley of Achor a resting place for herds, for my people who seek me. But you, by contrast, who forsake the Lord, Isaiah 65, 11, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune, and who fill cups with mixed wine for destiny. These are false gods, kind of the idea of gambling, lucky, and that kind of thing. I will destine you for the sword, and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter, because I called, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not hear. And you did evil in my sight, and chose that in which I did not delight. Therefore, thus says the Lord God to this sad group, Behold, 
My servant shall eat, but you shall be hungry. My servant shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. My servant shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servant shall shout joyfully with a glad heart, but you shall cry out with a heavy heart. You shall wail with a broken spirit. And you will leave your name for a curse to my chosen ones, and the Lord God will slay you, but my servants will be called by another name. Because he who is blessed in all the earth shall be blessed by the God of truth. Everybody take a look in verse 16. See the God of truth there? That is literally the God of amen. The God of amen. When you say the God of truth in this context, that's the God of amen. God is true. In Jesus Christ is the amen to God. So this title for Jesus is a title of deity. When you see Jesus called the amen or the faithful witness, it's the title of deity. Notice he who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of amen or the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten because they are hidden from my sight. Notice what happens now. For behold, God is talking. I create new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall, shall not be remembered or come to mind. A total deity passage from Isaiah 65. Go back to Revelation 3. This is where the quotation comes from. Jesus Christ is the amen. He is, Revelation 3.14, the faithful and true witness. If you want a good definition of amen, it's found in part two of Revelation 3.14. Amen means faithful and true. So the next description of Jesus is a description of deity defining amen within the verse. Everybody with me? So a good way to define amen is faithful and true. That's what Jesus is. He is faithful and true. We're going to see descriptions like this later on in the book of Revelation where uh, he is faithful and true, and when he returns, we'll see uh, descriptions of him like this. He is the way, he is the truth, and the, he is the life. The third description in Revelation 3.14 of deity is here. He is the beginning of the creation of God, and he says this. Now, as I've mentioned, our Jehovah's Witness friends seem to isolate Revelation 3.14, especially from all the other things I just mentioned. And when they see the word beginning, they take it that Jesus has a beginning. Although we do know that uh, in the book of Revelation, even as we've seen descriptions of the Father, we know the Father is the first and the last. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. When the Bible uses the word beginning, it's the Greek word arche. It's A-R-C-H-E, transliterated into English. It's where we get our English word architect. In fact, a modern translation has this rendered as originator. So it doesn't have it rendered as beginning. Now, our Jehovah's Witness friends look at this and they say, this means Jesus had a beginning. But they won't say that of the Father. When the Father's called the beginning and the end, they're not going to say that he had a beginning, right? They believe the Father is eternal. But when it's applied to Jesus, they want to say when it says he, has, he is the beginning, that that means he had a beginning. But that's not what the verse is saying. The verse is actually saying that Jesus is the originator, the architect, the creator, the beginner. The word RK is probably here best rendered. He's the originator, beginner, or the creator. Interestingly enough, think with me, as we studied Colossians, 
we encountered what we called the Colossian heresy. We looked at uh, Colossians 1:15 and 16 and 17, which clearly makes the case that Jesus Christ is God and the creator of all things. Think about it. Colossae was in a triad of cities with Laodicea and Hierapolis. So it shouldn't surprise us that the same sorts of heresy or false teachings were happening in Laodicea as in Colossae. Everybody with me? They were trying to demote Jesus. They were trying to make him an angel or a created being or an emanation of God. Way down the ladder, there's the God up here and then there's all these emanations, angels or lesser deities and then mankind. But no, the Bible's teaching that Jesus is the beginner. He is the creator. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the one true God. So a verse that actually emphatically is defending Christ's deity gets twisted by people who sadly don't know their Bibles. Or, to put it more uh, graciously, are deceived by an organization that is famous for this kind of stuff. Just to be blunt. Because they cannot stand the fact that Jesus is God. So they twist the scriptures to their own destruction. And I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just telling you this is a dangerous game to play. Because if you want to demote the deity of God, if you start messing with God's deity, what he says about himself, ain't good. Now there's some people who simply just do it in ignorance because they just read certain books, passages are isolated and, and they don't get it. And if you come uh, on the next 633, I'm going to get into this more and I'll show you how to put, easily put together an argument from, for the Trinity from the Bible. I'm not saying you're going to understand everything about the Trinity when you leave, because you won't. <laughs> Nobody really understands everything, but you're going to have a better handle on it. Jesus Christ is the beginning and the end. He is the Aleph Tav in Hebrew. He's the Alpha and the Omega in Greek. And this is an incredible uh, description because it means that the address is coming from God himself to the church. And what does he say next? I know your deeds. This is his assessment of this church. Just like he's assessed all the churches, he says, I know your work. And then he says that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. I wish that you were either one or the other, says the NIV. Now, in years uh, past, if you listen to some pastors who I'm sure meant well in the past, they would say something like this. Uh, Jesus wishes that Christians were either hot or cold. So he wishes that you would be cold, indifferent, not even know God, than be lukewarm. <clears throat> Sorry, <laughs> that's the wrong interpretation. In fact, Revelation 3.19, take, uh, take a peek ahead. It says, those whom I love, I reprove. Revelation 3.19 tells us that Jesus loves lukewarm believers. Everybody with me? Sometimes when we're lukewarm, we think, you know, God doesn't love me anymore. But God, God is not grading on performance in the sense of your salvation. He loves you. He loves lukewarm believers. He says, those whom I love, I discipline. So he loves us when we're blowing it. He doesn't want you to be cold. That's not the right interpretation. It, as defined as you're just, you know nothing of the things of God and you're just cold to God. Cold in this context means refreshing, 
like the cold waters running down Mount Cadmus, uh, probably into the piping system for Laodicea. Cold means refreshing, good, thirst quenching. Everybody with me? To be cold is to be good. It's to be alive. It's to be refreshing. That's what the Lord wants. To be hot is like the hot springs of Heropolis. Remember, I've told you that in many of the cities that are addressed by Jesus, the city's circumstances mirror his assessment to the church, and he makes application. He says, I wish you were like the cold, rushing streams of Colossae, refreshing. I wish you were like the hot springs of Heropolis, medicinal. How many of you enjoy sitting in a nice hot jacuzzi? Right? The, the little jet hitting the, the sore parts of your back. Yeah. Turn up the heat. 100 degrees, 105, 110. It's, it's all right. Right? And, and, and sometimes you go, oh, I just get in there. Yeah. He wants you to be refreshing or medicinal. Listen. To the culture. If you are a lukewarm believer, you're not going to be refreshing or medicinal to anybody because you're not doing anything. How are you doing today? Lukewarm. <laughs> right? But if you're cold, you're alive, refreshing. If you're hot, you're medicinal. You're, you're having an impact on people. You're, breathing, you're bringing a soothing relief or a cold uh, refreshment. But if you're lukewarm, nada. Nothing. The spiritual temperature of the Laodiceans is categorized by the Lord here and they're neither cold nor hot. They're lukewarm. This is, this is the imagery from the water supply. And this is the sad picture, sadly, of a lot of modern Christians in America. Let's be honest. Lukewarm believers abound. They're everywhere. In fact, if we were to just have an honest moment tonight, I would tell you that they may be the majority of the professing church in America. Ooh. Oh, I know. But remember, we're not so much concerned about what we think tonight and our assessments. What I really care about is what does the, the Lord of the church say about me? What's his assessment? Because in the end, that's all that's really going to matter. When you stand before God and he measures your works, you're not going to be able to chuckle back with your buddies. Oh, yeah, I don't know. You think that you No. You're going to be before a Bema seat. And look, it's not going to be for your sin. It's going to be for what you did, how you lived. Lukewarm believers are believers. That's why they're being challenged to repent. But notice the image. So because 16, you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. If you have an NIV, it says, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. The King James says, I'm going to spew you. The New King James says, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. The Greek word, when you look it up in Greek lexicons, means either to spit, but the majority of them mean to vomit. And I know we all could agree that it's not a pretty picture. 
Now, Jesus, once again, is using the imagery of the city's reality that when people drank water that had this carbonate stuff in it, it made you want to hurl. You've all heard of Montezuma's Revenge, you know? Don't drink the water, man, <laughs> right? So there's some countries that you have to go to, you have to bring bottled water. In India, uh, in 2001, we went on a mission trip to India and Nepal, and we had to bring all kinds of bottled water because the water was going to make you sick. But they said, also, when you got, got in a shower, you couldn't get the water in your eyes or anything because it would make you sick with any kind of contact like that. So we went into this one-and-a-half-star hotel with geckos on the wall. <laughs> geckos were your friend. Geckos were sleeping on my right and my left. I was like, nice gecko. They, <laughs> they said that the geckos ate the wasp and stuff, so you really needed geckos next to you. So, you know, I, one of them tried to sell me insurance, and it was, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Sorry. So, yeah. So, you're just longing <laughs> to take a shower. I'll try to recover from that one, I know. And so, we get, I get, get in this so-called shower. It's more like a drinking fountain that's broken. And it was like spewing out this water. But when you tried to wash your hair, you had to use your bottled water. That's how careful you had to be. Or you would get sick. And believe me, on a missions trip in Nepal and India, you did not want to be sick because the accommodations were not <laughs> where you would want to be. Anyway, we'll just leave it there. When you look at scholars and you, you study the assessment of Jesus they say something like this, this does not necessarily mean this is determinative. In other words, it's, it's a warning, but not necessarily has happened yet. Everybody with me? So Jesus says, in essence, as the NIV has it, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. But think about the way that we might say this. You know, if we say about something, that makes me want to throw up. <laughs> is there any positive spin you can put on something like that? That makes me sick. Well, the Lord of the church says that about Laodicean believers. I mean, I just want you to pause for a second. It's pretty strong. Pretty sobering. The Lord says, that makes me sick. Now, I don't think that this is determinative, as I said, but, but it's serious. Now, if you're a Laodicean believer and you hear this, how would you respond? <laughs> I would be taking some gulps and doing some serious soul searching and taking a look closely at my spiritual life. But the Laodiceans said, verse 17, and this is kind of how they saw themselves. Jesus says, because you say, I am rich, I become wealthy. They had the banking industry. I have need of nothing. And Jesus says, but you do not know. You do not know that you are wretched. Paul uses this word in Romans 7.24. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? You don't know that you're wretched, miserable. The word could be translated pitiful. In need of mercy is the idea of miserable. You're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. And all God's people said, gulp. While the Lord of the church says, not only, you know, you say you're rich, you say you don't need anything, but what you don't know, and, and here's the 
tragedy, they're ignorant of the fact that they're actually wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. To be ignorant of one's condition is sad. Oftentimes when we do evangelism, we try to use the law to the proud and grace to the humble. If somebody says, uh, well, you know, you're, you're telling me about this gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't know if God could ever forgive me. I've done so many bad things. We don't have to give them the Ten Commandments. They already know that they're a sinner. Now we give them grace. We tell them about the cross and the love of God. But if somebody says to you, I don't need Jesus Christ. What do I need Jesus for? I'm good. Bank account's good. I've got profit sharing. The Dow was up. My bank account looks good. I've got fine designer clothing. I've got a great job, a mansion and a yacht, two cars, whatever you want to say. Well, that was the attitude of the Laodicean believers, but that's often the attitude of the unbelieving world. And through the law, we have to show them their need, that even their righteous deeds are like filthy rags before the Lord, Isaiah 64, 6. See, many moderns believe that they're going to be fine because they assess everything on a horizontal plane. But God is holy. Even our righteous deeds, the best that we can do in benevolence and otherwise, is not going to cut it. And so this self-reliant city has gotten an assessment from the Lord of the church, and he says, you're comfortable and complacent, but you don't know your condition God sees they were dull, self-deluded to their true condition. James 1.22 says, don't be merely a hearer of the word who, what? Deceives himself, but be a doer. James 1.22 talks about a self-delusion where one can hear the word but doesn't do the word. And James says, if that's you, you're self-deceived. You merely hear it, but you don't do it. Jesus says, I'll show you two kinds of people. One person hears my sayings, and he does them, and he's like a person who built his house upon the rock. And when the storm came and the winds blew and it beat against that house, that house did not fall because it was founded upon the rock. I'll show you another person. He hears my sayings, but he does not do them, and he built his house upon the sand. And when the storm comes and the wind blows, that house falls, and great is its demise. What's the difference? Oh, both houses heard the same sermons, but one house did what he said, and the other didn't, heard but didn't do. And the difference, of course, is pretty significant. The city in AD 60, Tacitus, the Roman uh, historian, says, uh, they, the city, without any relief from us, from Rome, recovered itself by its own resources. But it was poor, blind, and naked. Think about these descriptions. An area famous for eye salve, but still blind. Uh, an area wealthy in the banking industry, end of 17, but described as Poor. An area booming with the latest fashions in black wool, described as naked. Because Jesus is not talking about material things. Where it is so easy to assess life by materialism, right? 
So what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? How do I look? Look at what I drive. Look at what I do. And Jesus says, oh, I'm looking right through that. See, your self-confidence and your self-reliance is your supreme weakness. In fact, it's exposed you. Do you know that uh, in all of our affluence as Americans, we have a problem that we have to fight that we may not all realize. In our affluence, we can become totally self-reliant. We don't have to rely upon God. So we have a a society that's constantly trying to raise it up a notch uh, in terms of what we possess, and we're like the emperor who has no clothes. So you say, Pastor Michael, enough, enough. Is there, <laughs> is there any good news here? Is there any solutions? Here it comes. Verse 18, I advise you, here's my counsel. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may become rich or truly rich. Solution, number one, for lukewarm believers, buy gold refined by the fire. And some of you may be saying, what in the world does that mean? What do you mean by gold refined in the fire? Well, when something's refined in fire, what happens? All the dross gets taken out. So if you put a piece of uh, silver or gold and you're going to try to get the impurities out of it, there's going to be a refining process. How many of you remember the song Refiner's Fire? How many of you sang that song? How many of you still sing that song? Be careful when you sing that song. Here's, Here's how it goes. Refiner's fire, my heart's one desire is to be holy, set apart for you, Lord. Here's what you're saying. Go ahead, refine me. Okay, guess what you just asked? Put me in the fire, Lord. The solution for an affluent, self-reliant, overconfident believer is to go through the fire of testing. (gasps) What does that mean exactly? Could you be more specific? Something probably like a trial, a storm, a test, a difficulty. Something like, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this one. I think, gulp, I'll pray. (laughs) Every other option's gone. (laughs) I guess it's time to pray, family. Oh. (laughs) In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. The, The proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. Oftentimes to get out of lukewarmness, we've got to be put into the fire. The fire of trials, the fire of testing. We often run to God because we run out of our own options. And you may be in a fire tonight. And you may be asking the question, God, what are you doing? You can at least... And I'm not saying that this is the answer in every case, but you can at least ask yourself, was I lukewarm prior to this fire? Maybe that's why I'm in the fire. Second solution for lukewarm believers is a new spiritual wardrobe. Take a look at verse 18. It says, 
Um, I advise you to buy me gold refined by the fire that you may become rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and the sh- that the shame of your nakedness may, be, may not be revealed. Second solution for lukewarm believers is a new spiritual wardrobe. Put on the new man. Put on the full armor of God. All metaphors for making sure that you get clothed with the things of God before you leave the house. And all God's people said, amen, true, but don't always do. Sometimes I'm on the freeway and I realize I don't have my shoes on. I, don't, I didn't get dressed. I'm not spiritually prepared. Dr. Martin used to say, you know, you know what they call believers who don't have the armor of God, who go out on the battlefield? Casualties. We need to suit up. Jesus says, you need to get your garments from me. You need, we're not talking physical, we're talking spiritual realities. The new man, the white garments, we'll see uh, the church clothing herself in fine linen, bright and clean garments in Revelation 19.8. We've got the armor of God. We've got putting on the new man. We've got adorning the doctrine of God. This is, these are all metaphors for men. Make sure that you're filled with the Spirit and you're in the things of God. Third solution for lukewarm believers He says, and I salve, end of 18, to anoint your eyes that you may see. Oh, you may have the world-famous eye salve, but I got some spiritual eye salve that you got to put on so you can start seeing things the way you really need to see them. Give me your eyes for just one second. Give me your eyes so I can see. You ever just pray that? Lord, give me your eyes. I'm, I'm... not where I need to be. I need spiritual 2020. Give me your glasses. Because my vision is often mess up, messed up. Spiritual realities. What informs how you truly see the world? What informs how you see your spouse? What informs how you see other Christians? What informs how you see your weak? What informs your biggest priorities? God's word? Something else. Man, we need spiritual 2020. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord, that I may be enlightened so that I may know what is the hope of your calling, what are the riches of the glory of your inheritance and the saints. Ephesians 1.18, I need, I need you to give me new jewelry, new clothes, new eyes, and a new water system. <laughs> All from Jesus. Living water. New glasses, new jewelry, new wardrobe. Lord, clothe me. Clothe me with the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Well, you, you hear this and you say, man, this is, it sounds a little harsh. Like, does he really love me? Well, those whom I love, Revelation 3.19, I reprove. The word reprove there is a Greek word which means to admonish or convict and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. The solution, the ultimate solution for lukewarm believers is repentance. If you've been going in the lukewarm direction, it's to turn around and say, Lord, give me new eyes, new jewelry, new clothes, new living water. Just take over my life. And I want to remind you, those whom I love, he loves even lukewarm believers. If you're lukewarm tonight, he loves you, but he's willing to discipline you. 
In fact, Hebrews 12 says that he disciplines the son in whom he delights. It says, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Hebrews 12, 6, he scourges every son whom he receives. It says about our earthly fathers, they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he, God, Hebrews 12, 10, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. Joyful, And all God's people said, amen. But sorrowful. Yet those who have been trained by that discipline afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Someone has written. And so what do I say? I say, let the rains of disappointment come if they water the plants of spiritual grace. Let the winds of adversity blow if they serve to root more securely the trees that God has planted. I say, let the sun of prosperity be eclipsed if that brings me closer to the true light of life. Welcome, sweet discipline. Discipline designed for my joy. Discipline designed to make me what God wants me to be. Oh, even reading that makes me uncomfortable. But God knows what we truly need. Be zealous and repent. This is the way that lukewarm believers get back to where they need to be. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and he will and will dine with him and he with me. Now, those of us who have watched enough Billy Graham Crusades or Greg Laurie Harvest know that Revelation 3.20 has been a famous evangelistic verse for many an evangelist, and I have no problem because the spirit of the verse is evangelistic. Behold, I'm at the door knocking. I seek the lost. I'm a seeker of the lost. I want to find lost people. I came to seek and to save that which was lost. But this is not an evangelistic verse in context. The spirit of the verse is fine to use for evangelism, but it's written to a church, not to unbelievers. And the Lord of the church, outside the door of the church, is saying to the church, let me in. Oh, we got programs, Lord. We're good. We got this going on. We're good. We got this rocking band. We're good. We got, you name it. But if the Lord of the church is knocking on the door, let him in. Amen? Amen. I mean, it's a sad reality, but, you know, I think it was, uh, I'm trying to remember the author's name, but he said if the Holy Spirit was taken out of the church, a lot of churches wouldn't even notice. What? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. There's an insight from Colin Hemmer writing a commentary on Revelation. He says, The people of Laodicea were subjected to the insults of soldiery billeted upon them, to whom their hosts were compelled to pay a daily sum. They also had to provide dinner for the soldiers and their guests and clothing and daily subsidies for their officers. When they knocked, you were compelled to open the door and feed them. If Roman soldiers showed up at your house and said, this is Rome knocking, you opened your door, you fed them, you gave them whatever they wanted, and when they were through with exhausting your resources, then they left, and only when they were good and ready to leave. And you had no options. 
When they knocked at your door, you got the bread out. And if your family didn't eat that night, too bad, because it was better than facing the Roman iron fist. But Jesus doesn't do things that way. He doesn't knock down your door. He's at the door, what? Knocking. And he says, if you'll hear my voice, look at the verse, if anyone, any of us, will hear his voice and open the door, the handle of the door is on your side. It's up to you. How close do you want to be to God tonight? It's up to you. Do you want him in or not? Do you repeat the refrain? I hear you knocking, but you can't come in. Or, not now, Lord. I'll look for a more convenient time. <laughs> and the Lord says, I mean, isn't it cool that he knocks? Some people in my household don't knock. <laughs> don't you people know how to knock? These are confessions of a preacher <laughs> inside our own dwellings. We're so comfortable with one another. But you got to learn to knock sometimes, right? God is so gracious. He made the universe. He's the Lord of the church, and he actually knocks. Hey, would you let me in? I'd like to spend some time with you. The Lord of the universe wants to be close to you. And he gives you the option. You want to open the door? I'll come in. The idea of continual knocking is the hope of response and the response, of course, is repentance because this group of Laodicean believers has locked God out of their everyday lives. They're self-sufficient. They're good. They've been listening to the wrong voices. They've been wearing the wrong glasses and the wrong clothing. They've shut him out. And he's at the door saying, let me back into your life. And he may be saying that to you. I know he says it to me all the time. Michael, you can do all of that, but the first thing you need to do is get close to me. Yes, Lord. Oh, man, I, I hear that voice almost every day. Michael, <laughs> you could take 10 more minutes to prepare, but you need to pray. Yes, Lord. And sometimes I wait till the last two minutes, but let me just do one more thing, Lord. I hear you knocking, but Michael, let me in and spend time with me. I'm at the door, knocking. Notice the, the language of dining here. I will come in, end of 20. and I will come in when you open the door. So he's not going to run from you. He, he, he's knocking and, he, and you respond. He'll come in, whatever the condition of the house may be. And I will dine with him and he with me. In the ancient world, to have a meal with someone was not fast food, man. It was a slow, intimate conversational, get to know each other's hearts. And finally, a promise, as we've seen at the end of uh, all these letters, he who overcomes, the overcomer, verse 21, notice this, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. You think Rome would let you sit on the emperor's throne? Hey, Yell out to the Caesar from the back of the crowd. Hey, Caesar, do you mind if I, I just 
Like five minutes, I'm going to take some pictures with my friends. No, you ain't sitting on the emperor's throne. But the Lord of the universe says, if you overcome. See, he's, he's got no worries about sharing everything with his bride. You're his bride, church. He says, you're going to sit down with me on my throne. Cross-reference Revelation 2, 26 through 28. Something similar is said to an earlier church. And finally, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, Father, we know that the world is full of all kinds of voices today that often drown out what I think you're trying to say to us. And forgive us, Lord, for the many times that we turned up all the wrong music and we were not sensitive to your Spirit. And thank you that you love even lukewarm believers, of which we would all admit there's times, even with that, within our day, that we go from lukewarm to hot to cold. And Lord, uh, we just have to confess that we just fight this battle, but we know that when we let you in to fight the battles for us, when we let you clothe us, when we let you give us your eyes and your heart, everything changes. We need your eye salve. We need the clothing that you give us, Lord. We need your glasses and we need your living water. And so we just want to pray tonight, wherever we're at, that we've heard your voice, that we'll respond in a way that brings you glory and that we'll open the door. Just keep your heart open right now. You know, really the door of your life is your heart. It's not your pumping organ. It's the core of who you are. And that's where Jesus wants lordship. He wants to be enthroned right there in the center of who you are. And so I'm sure if you're like me, you need to do a little business right now and just something like this. Lord Jesus, just come in. Take full residence in my heart. Let your word richly dwell within me. Pray along with me, saints. Let your word richly dwell within me. Lord, just come in and do some house cleaning and change my heart and change my eyes and change my attitude. Give me zeal where there's lukewarmness. Give me passion where there's dryness. If you're not a Christian tonight and you've never opened the door, you've never opened it for the first time, he's at the door. You're here for a reason. He wants to save you and change you. It doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. It doesn't mean you're going to arrive, but you can start today. Something like this, pray it if it's you. Jesus, save me. I believe you died on that cross for me. I believe you rose from the dead, and I trust you, and you alone for my salvation. Be my Lord, be my Savior, and change me from the inside out, I pray. Give me a new start, Lord. Father, repentance is, a, is for unbelievers, but it's also for believers in areas in where, where we may need to repent and just do a 180, help us in that area, Lord. Thank you that you love us despite our shortcomings, and thank you that you would even stand at the door of our lives and knock. And I just pray that we'll be closer to you tonight because we've been here, and that you'll be glorified in our lives this week in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Would you